Hi, this is Chris Kotnor, executive producer of the DSR Network's family of podcasts. I wanted to tell you about an exciting opportunity we have for a podcast producer. Our ideal applicant will have a deep interest and background in international and domestic issues, podcast production experience, and our desire to help grow the podcast. The person will also take the lead on promoting programming on social media and potentially could co-host podcasts, must be comfortable working with very high-level guests worldwide, including current government officials, strong academic background in political science, international affairs, or public policy required, excellent writing skills, a familiarity with WordPress, the Riverside podcasting platform, and a willingness to do whatever it takes is essential. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, please email us at info at the dsrnetwork.com. That's info at the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you. We're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK here in your nation's capital. Joining me here, Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and at IISS in London, England, the Deputy Secretary General or whatever your ty- what is your ty- Deputy <laughs> Commander Field Deputy Marshal Director General Deputy, Deputy Director General Deputy Director General Field Marshal Dr. <laughs> Professor Corey Shockey at her desk um, working away uh, in into the London night. You know, folks, I, one of the things that's it's gotten to me today, today, as it happens, I normally don't say this, but we're recording this on President's Day. And, you know, this is in Alexandria, Virginia, by the way, where we're, you know, and there are these parades and and the parades are all for George Washington because George Washington is from Alexandria, Virginia. He's the native son here. And I was watching some of it earlier as it went by, and I actually get a chill. And the chill was associated with the fact that that 
George Washington established the office of the presidency of the United States and set an incredible standard. In fact, history changed on two personal decisions of George Washington, not institutional, not winning a war. First, he was offered the title of king, and he said, no, I I will not be king. I'm going to be a president. We fought to get rid of kings. And secondly, at the end of two terms, he said, I'm not going to stay in office for the whole of my life. We're going to have an election. We're going to we're going to make the presidency not a lifetime appointment. And if he hadn't done that, the history of the world would have been different. And he did it. And it was based, absolutely true. Right. And it's based on his character as an individual. And everywhere you walk around Alexandria. I feel like I know where this is going. There's. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm you know, imagine if he knew where it was going. Well, actually, he did. In his farewell address, he warns of precisely the kind of thing that we've ended up with now. But as I walk around and I see these plaques or I see the parades today, I think, how did we get from there to here? It's not just stumbling. It's not just a precipitous fall. It's a calamitous, unthinkable fall. And I'll just give you one example of this. The the we we we've talked about the Russia investigation. Let's set it aside. We've talked about bad policy decisions or governance. Let's set aside all the regulatory pullback. Let's set aside the bad climate change. Let's set aside not having a science advisor and having some 31-year-old kid who's never done anything as the only science person in the White House. Let's set aside <laughs> Um, let's, let's, you know, set aside the North Korean nuclear war rumblings and all that. Let's set aside Puerto Rico, where a fifth of the population still doesn't have power five months after a natural disaster. How much more do we have to set aside? Let's set aside (laughs) the, 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 the sexual harassment, the porn stars, the payoffs to the porn stars and so forth. And let's just take one thing. The president of the United States has a club that he owns in Florida called Mar-a-Lago. And if you join that club, you get access to the president. And you get your picture taken with the president. And as in the past weekend, the president asks your advice on things like gun control. And you pay the president for access to the president. And then, same time, his son gets on a plane, flies off to India, where they're selling apartments in India, And if you pay $38,000 or something like that for an apartment, you get access to his son, who, by the way, although he's just a real estate figure, is giving a foreign policy speech while he is in India. And if you're a country and you've got a Trump tower in your country, even if you're an autocrat, even if you're anti-democratic, even if you're a murderer um, like Duterte, you will have better relations with the U.S. than if you're not a Trump. We have gotten to the point of tin pot dictatorship, pay-for-play U.S. government. And even if none of these other things existed, we've always had some corruption. We've always had money in politics. But, Ed, this place we're at, the president is actually profiting every single day selling access 
to his office. He's selling off the furnishings. And I was in the Clinton administration. I remember when, you know, people said, oh, my God, there's people in the Lincoln bedroom because they gave a campaign donation. Right. And, and, and you know, we, we have it's just so sort of charming now. It's yeah. It, well, indeed, it's it is. so quaint. Right. And is that wrong? Yeah, that is wrong. And is Citizens United wrong? Yeah, that is wrong. And were Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation, was all that stuff wrong? That was all wrong. But we are orders of magnitude away from that. We are institutionalizing corruption at the highest level in the United States. Seems to me that that has a damaging effect not only on us as a democracy and as our character as a nation, but on our standing in the world. I think incalculable. Let me just first say, though, I think there ought to be a rap musical called Washington. Um, there's a great one called Hamilton, but Ron Chernow's better book is the one he wrote on Washington. It's actually even more gripping, I find, than, ah. his, than his Hamilton book. And for, for a number of reasons, but I think you've, you omitted, David, you had two very important gifts that Washington gave to America and its political character and to world history. Um, that he refused a, a title of monarch and that he left after two terms. He also gave a third, which is that he was urged to wear his uniform in office. He was urged but to... But Corey, at the time, said that would be a breach of civil military <laughs> relations. That is exactly Corey, what Corey is a descendant, therefore, of Washington. <laughs> Corey is a descendant of Washington in that respect, um, and probably in many others. Uh, so I, I, I um, wanted to start my answer by agreeing with you about the the world historical importance of the man who was from this town, Alexandria. What are the effects of Trump? They are incalculable. They are, I mean, I think, you know, I think of my Italian friends when they talk about the effect of Berlusconi. I was based in the Philippines for the Financial Times for two years. And so I, I know a little bit about Duterte. In fact, I interviewed him. So, you know, having, uh, having, uh, observed what crooks and thugs can do in in much less robust countries than the United States. Um, I'm fairly pessimistic about our ability to re-up our standards, our expectations of public service, um, and our our ideas of of um of politics being in any shape or form about any kind of value. But Trump Trump is obliterating this. What what we are adjusting to what is becoming becoming normal is very hard to is it's very hard to reelevate back to the standards we had we had before we are so unshockable you mentioned stormy stormy daniels it wasn't even seventh on your eu agricultural set aside policy um <laughs> earlier uh it, it was it was like 10th 10th on that wow list. It's the best argument i ever heard for brexit yes. the fact that you would make that analogy <laughs> indeed <laughs> and, uh, i can i can i can talk eu agriculture is for the rest of this podcast if you like but everybody would switch up you'd lose this, all 17 we're gonna do a new podcast <laughs> we're gonna do a new podcast is. called lullabies Who's taken to calling you her present husband? <laughs> wow. <laughs> calling me her present colonial oppressor. <laughs> um, so um, the, the, the answer is, you know, I, it's not 11 or 14. It is incalculable. Um, it, it is incalculable. But, but yet, you know, it goes on. And I think, Corey, don't you, that the effect is 
is is cumulative, you know, and and thus especially pernicious. Every day it goes on. Every person who gains access, every picture that gets taken, every speech that is given this way, every cabinet post that is given away for these reasons, and half of the people in the Trump cabinet are now under investigation. By the way, for one thing or another, which is every really kind of- single time he goes to a personally owned property and conducts government business there to his own uh, enrichment. And and we don't balk and all bone up on the emoluments crisis. Yeah, it's really true. We are, we are being slowly acclimatized to the horribleness of this in a way that is going, I, I've seldom been as scared for my country as listening to Ed a couple of minutes ago, because he's right. It, it It is actually hard to return to a standard once you have compromised it. You know, there's a saying in the military that every time you walk by a breach of the rules and don't correct it, you've just set a new standard. When and that's I think what's that's, going on that's, in American politics. That's the point. That, that really is what I wanted to turn to you and talk to you about, Evelyn, because we all knew Trump was a bad guy. And if you really want to get an insight into this, by the way, I strongly recommend, if you haven't already, read the Jeffrey Tubin article in the current New Yorker about, well, actually, it's the February 28th cover edition, about Trump's beauty pageant in Moscow. Because if you, if you really want to sort of get a sense of how he operated and how the Russians probably operated on him at the same time, you, 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 know, you get it from that. But it's not just Trump, Evelyn. Because if there were a, a, if if the Republican leaders on the Hill had a, a half a human spine amongst them, yes, this was where I wanted to go. Because because what he's doing is look, we have a whole a whole body of law which is negative law. There are no laws that that prohibit Trump from behaving as he's behaving because it's it's relied upon culture and an understanding of what the character of a president should be from Washington on. And so now I think what we have now is a situation that calls for legislative and judicial activism. They need to step into the breach and say, unfortunately, our democracy and our culture and our society has eroded to the point where we elect this kind of person. And it's not just him. He's surrounded by like-minded people. And if if there is no counter to this, if there is no activism on the part of the legislature, first and foremost, and then the judiciary, which will then interpret between the legislature and the executive, then people will continue to emulate because we have, of course, within every human, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the negative and the positive. And oftentimes people need the example provided and, the, and, and many times they need the 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 potential punishment for acting in a self-interested fashion. So I think the answer, the an- the antidote, it resides in the other branches of government. When I think that, Corey, is something that doesn't get discussed a lot. I don't think it gets understood overseas. Now, you're over there in, uh, you know, the U.S. colony, as we like to think of it. The 51st state. Right. And, you know, Eastern Manhattan. And and, at, and as you're sort of walking around there, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, it's easy for everybody to talk about Trump. In fact, we, you know, the U.S., we always do this. We always make a country one person. But um, the leadership of the GOP on Capitol Hill right now is as weak and as short-sighted and as venal 
as it has ever been. And they're oh, letting David. this they're letting this happen. Oh, David. I don't know. I <laughs> think you dramatically underestimate other historical incidences of venality on the part of my political party. Uh, so, but well, I do. But I leave it to you to correct the record. <laughs> <laughs> but um, second point is that I was um, having lunch today with a stellar deep state radio nerd who is the defense correspondent for The Economist magazine, the outstanding Matthew Simons. And uh, he he was pointing out to me that, uh, do I really count as the Republican voice in this constellation on Deep State Radio anymore, given how often uh, and I am in close and careful alignment with the criticism of my political party? And I want to assert that, yes, I am the Republican voice for exactly the reason Evelyn and David just emphasized, which is we need to win this argument in the Republican Party. And we need to win it by who we put up for congressional seats, by who we put up for governors, by uh, and not allow our fellow Republicans to avert their eyes from the erosion of our democratic uh, union by saying, but judges or but tax cuts. Um, because it's wonderful to have Republican conservative judges confirmed for the court. And some Republicans are very strongly in favor of the tax cuts that have been passed. But uh, weighed in the balance of the damage being done to our democratic norms, we need to continue to have this argument internal to the Republican Party. It's not going to be good enough to leave it to... Um, to the Republicans in Congress who are failing the test. Ed. Well, first of all, I want to say you're absolutely right, Corey, because I think somebody has to say that to you. Secondly, Yay! <laughs> She's been waiting for so long. She is absolutely right. Republicans, uh, <laughs> Republicans need to do it for themselves um, for the sake of everybody else. Um, the likelihood of that happening is, is I think, fairly slim at the moment. And, and I think my sort of best measure of that is the fact that Mitt Romney is seen as the knight on the white horse here. And Mitt Romney is, I think, uh, more of a weather vane than a man of principle. Um, he has delivered uh, in, during the campaign and since Trump won some very strong clarion calls uh, along the lines of what you did for Republicans to stand up for principle, um, for Republicans to... Um, rediscover what they're supposed to be about, not Trump, namely. Um, but he's also, um, you know, when he had the chance of being Secretary of State, abased himself to an extraordinary degree um, in order to ingratiate himself um, unsuccessfully, as it turned out, with Trump. The fact that Romney is seen as the new McCain, who himself wasn't always McCain, um, is to me a worrying sign of where the, of where of the Republican Party's ability to take your absolutely correct advice, Corey. Well, let me pick up on that. Go in a slightly different direction, Evelyn. Um, and I'd like to pick on Corey's party a little bit more aggressively here. <laughs> the number one recipient of NRA dollars in the Republican Party on the Hill 
is McCain with $7 million or something like that from the NRA. Trump got $30 million. That's the National Rifle Association, for those of you outside the United States, uh, an organization that is responsible for the fact that the United States now has $300 million guns in it. Uh, and leads the world in every form of gun violence by far, and an organization that has perpetuated um, a myth about the United States Constitution that it actually gives people unfettered right to guns, which, in fact, if you read the Second Amendment, it does not do. It says in order to, uh, you know, enable us to have militias, people are entitled to have a right to bear arms, um, which was, by the way, and Corey would refer to this if I didn't, um, uh, a, a fraud cited by a former Republican chief justice of the United States Supreme Court as and called a fraud. Um, and, 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 you know, we talk about national security all the time around here. The biggest threat to U.S. life and limb of all those that we can cite, aside from self-inflicted diseases and other kinds of things, by far is gun violence. And the Republican Party, with the funding of the National Rifle Association, is the party of gun insanity in the United States. And they try to say we're strong on national security, but it strikes me that you can't be strong on national security and still perpetuate this notion that all Americans should have as many guns of whatever kinds they want. And you also can't be strong on law and order because believe me, if you're working on a police force in a police department in a major urban city, especially, and you're dealing with the kind of weapons that people can buy on the open market in the United States with very few checks, then you are not very happy. So if only Rosa Brooks were here with us right now, who actually I is was on a police department. I was just thinking that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I forgot. But Rosa, but folks, who will be back next week, is in a minivan driving down the New Jersey Turnpike as we speak, <laughs> getting back to Washington. After a three day weekend. Um, anyway, sorry, go on. But yeah, I mean, and, and that to me is interesting. And, and, and surprisingly, that that constituency has not been able to assert itself uh, against the NRA. I don't quite understand that. Um, but the Republican Party, I do believe in this respect, has become captive to the NRA on the issue of gun control. And all I can say, you know, my 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 greatest hope and desire when it comes to gun control is at the minimum, can we please become more like Australia um, and ban automatic weapons, do a buyback? They may have banned actually even more than automatic weapons. I don't know what it is. But after their largest school shooting, which occurred in the Tasmania, early 2000s yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah. Um, they passed and it took a lot of political fortitude on the part of the prime minister at the time. I don't recall now which one it was. Uh, was this? This was pre Howard, wasn't it? This was uh, yeah. Ke- Keating. Maybe Keating. I think it might have been Keating. In any event, the 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 intestinal fortitude it took, the courage it took, uh, paid off because Australia now has. I don't. I don't even know what the statistics are, but it's been a. You can show it on a graph. It's a. It's a complete. You know, free fall in terms of gun. Uh, gun violence and deaths. Of I can tell you. I can tell you that Britain, with sixty-five million people, has fewer homicides than Chicago, with three million people. 
Anyway, it's about wow. five. Wow, and why is that? And it's it's for the same reason. In fact, almost exactly the parallel with Australia. There was a school massacre in Dunblane in Scotland, mm-hmm. and a dramatic tightening up of gun. The country in Europe, which has the least controls on guns, or rather has the most guns in homes, because they have a citizen army, is Switzerland, and Switzerland has a homicide rate I think five times higher than anywhere else in Europe. So that's to me case closed. No, there's it's direct, availability of guns. direct correlation. Uh, None of the other issues. And Corey, I don't mean to put you on the spot because I consider you a source of enlightenment on all issues. But for example, the assault weapons ban started in the Clinton administration and ended in the middle of the Bush administration. And, and the Republican party has on issue after issue been for this kind of freewheeling view towards guns. And that includes all branches of the party. I mean, John Kasich, who wants to run possibly as an independent, uh, has an A rating from the NRA and has been voting sort of pro-gun stuff for a long, long time. How do you reconcile that with concerns about U.S. national security? So I so wish you actually wouldn't put me on the spot on that one. And that uh, because I always get uh, jittery when our foreign policy podcast uh, talks about domestic policy issues like this. Uh, That said, it does seem to me that the solution to this problem uh, has to have two elements. One element is uh, that it's actually quite shocking to me that the number of school shootings that we have had in the last several years have mobilized parents um, to to force this issue on the Republican Party. I'm actually just as a political analyst, I'm shocked that that the party hasn't come under much more pressure. But we now begin to see, for example, major Republican donors say they are not giving any money to anyone until you get sensible gun restrictions. The second thing that I notice that is changing is that. Uh, while we may have general civil military concerns about veterans as an organized political force, um, I, I think the right way to think about veterans in politics as a civil military issue is that they ought to be treated as one interest group among many others, right? Among Rotarians and, uh, and church groups and everybody else who has particular areas of knowledge and interest to contribute to the common good. And one of those areas that I notice in my Twitter timeline and circle of friends, uh, which is heavily veteran, is that veterans are mobilizing for gun control in a way I have not seen them mobilize on other issues. And that will, uh, you know, maybe Evelyn is right and that Republicans have so lost our moorings that we're anti-law enforcement and pro-Russia and therefore irredeemable. And that is the view of of several prominent former Republicans, Bob Kagan, Max Boot, uh, Elliot Cohen. Uh, I myself uh, still think the Republican Party is redeemable and that the way to do it is an inside out conversation where we Republicans 
need to be concerned about the safety of our kids and treat the central issue of our civic virtue in a way we have been failing to. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry to put you on the spot and, 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 and make you uncomfortable with the discussion of what you think or what you have framed as a, as a domestic issue. But Ed, you know, the, the, the recent assessments um, by top U.S. national security officials said the deficit was the biggest national security threat that the United States faced or our financial condition was. Um, and, and I think one could make a pretty strong case that if you look at what our real national security concerns are, they are things like the state of our financial health, the state of our environment, the state of our schools, and the state of safety in the streets. And particularly when you talk about security, if one thing is killing, you know, the majority of Americans are bringing violent death to the majority of Americans, we ought to address it. And I thought when Corey was about to begin and say, you know, here are the things that could change this, you know, all it would take would be for the next three school shootings to be committed by Muslims. You know, and 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 all of a sudden, the Trump administration would be an entirely different place. Although it would probably involve banning Muslims and shutting down right, mosques, not gun control, and not gun gun control. But I think you know, you know, if you go back, as Corey almost inevitably would, to George Kennan's long telegram, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, written at the, in the, you know in the sort of earliest days, of, sort of pre of the Cold War. He, if you look at the last two paragraphs of the, the long telegram, or you look at the very end, he talks about that, you know, American strength begins at home. And we have to be an example to the world and we have to tend to those things within our society that keep us strong. And clearly, if you look at what has broken down, we still have the most powerful military in the world. We didn't need the $80 billion boost we're giving. It was by far the technologically, we lead the world. We are unassailable in all those things. So what's going wrong? Why are we struggling? And if you look at things like these other issues, whether it's guns, violence, schools, racial division, inequality, financial weakness, that's where America is being threatened. That's where the the sources of our strength are being threatened. And and it, and it seems to me we don't we make a mistake by siloing these issues off from each other. Yeah, I mean I would dispute one aspect of your question. I don't think on technology America is unassailable. Um I think I think what China is but doing, we, but I mean that's in not AI and so yeah. forth. Yeah, you're you're absolutely um, right. But we we are still a leader. We're still a strong yeah, sure. position. Right? No, undoubtedly. Um, uh, the, the greatest danger to America is America at the moment. I think it's, it's also in this, with this administration, one of the sort of biggest dangers to global stability too, if not the biggest in, in some respects. Um, I think it's been apparent for a long time and Obama tried to, um, push this. Evelyn can, can correct me, but Obama tried to I- explain we're really pivoting to America here. We need to be rebuilding at home, whether it's our education system, whether it's our infrastructure, whether it's our ability to do practical politics, because that that's, you know, fundamentally broken um, uh, to have a, a properly regulated financial system and indeed to have things like safety in schools um, and a, a more rational law enforcement um, approach to guns. 
all of these things are obvious, have been obvious for a long time. Um, Republicans like Cory, um, Democrats all, all can basically agree, you know, when, when, they, when they're not being required to wear their party hats on a TV show, all, all will basically agree that rebuilding at home is, is the source, the best thing America can do in terms of its global role in foreign policy. And that includes, of course, um, behaving like a model democracy again, because America's soft power and how its democracy is seen and how it functions or doesn't function is a key integral part of America's, of America's power. So I don't think that, I, I mean, I think that's a no brainer and it has been for a long time. Um, my, my, my problem is that saying it don't make it so it's, it's, it's just so hard to see where we get from this deeply toxic position that we're in, which is getting more and more sort of group based, more and more racialized, um, as time goes on. And Trump indeed is, you know, he's, he's not going to be campaigning on middle class economic issues when he's, when he's campaigning for reelection. He's not going to have a record to run on. The midterms aren't going to be about that. They're going to be about NFL kneeling issues. They're going to be about things that inflame group identity and differences. And what, what's disturbing to me is a, you know, he's done it once and it can work again. I, on balance, probably won't, wouldn't predict that it will, but it could, it could happen again. And if we get Trump twice, that is way worse than Trump twice. This is really, this is proof positive. The system is broken. Um, and, yep, I think that's exactly um, and right. Trump twice is, is just a, a fundamentally bigger disaster than, than Trump once. But can I challenge sure. you because you brought up my party and Obama and I think actually President Obama also had it wrong because you can't separate these two things. It's about principled, courageous leadership. And that's the same leadership that has to deal with the domestic issues as well as what's going on globally. I agree. And, I agree. and, and unfortunately, President Obama also misunderstood because where he had a strong voice domestically, he was and, and internationally, he had a strong voice. Yet in both cases, he saw a, an artificial division. And I would argue, certainly in the international case, you, you can argue he, he did not live up to his rhetoric with his actions. And domestically, you probably could also make that case. I mean, I think it's a little too early to assess, you know, whether he might have done more in his second term to head off some of the problems we're, we're, we're experiencing now with regard to the, the divisions within our society. We, you think we might have. Well, I don't know. That's why I'm saying it's a little too well, early. But who, for Obama? Obama. He might have used he his bully pulpit to actually do something. Well, of course he would have. I mean, you know, Obama, weak on immigration, weak on guns, weak on this Russia thing, weak on foreign policy. Was he a good man? Was he sincere? Was he working uh, yes, hard? Absolutely. Was he brilliant? Was he, you know, did he do a lot of things? Great. Yes. Would we take him over Trump in a heartbeat? Yes, we'd take Peter Rabbit over Trump in a heartbeat. <laughs> but 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 the the, the but the, the the reality is that on a bunch of these things, Obama didn't do very well. And it doesn't suit, it doesn't protect the Democratic Party to go and say, oh no, Obama was hundred percent right on this. No. He wasn't. Well, We're, I think part of and, and part of it gets back to also what we said we talked earlier about institutions. President Obama never understood and appreciated the role of Congress. He he looked at individual members and you can look down sometimes disdainfully based on their resumes, as you might do if you were a Harvard Law School graduate. <laughs> but 
you're missing the point then, because your point is these people are a microcosm of the United States, whether they are as bright as you are or not. It's your job to try to convince them to try to figure out Bill Clinton or LBJ style, how to use them in order to achieve your political purposes. Well, there's also no plan B. You got to work with them. Well, he didn't. He exactly. Had the executive it's the president's orders. main job to work with Congress and to steer them towards legislating an agenda that that he makes a case to the national public for. Right. But his but his cop out, if you will, was the executive orders, the using executive orders to push through basically short term changes because he didn't get the consensus of the American people through the Congress. He didn't get it legislated into law. Trump is doing the same thing. And I think, again, it's a failure of leadership. Well, you know, Corey, take it from the perspective of a historian. And and honestly, as people here know, I'm working on a book on this, and I'm really trying to come to grips with this. And I see a lot of the- Book on what? On the the past, on the baby boom presidencies. Um, And the fact that if you look at Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump, and as I've said before on the show- Interestingly, Clinton, Bush, and Trump were all born in the same year. Um, and th- this was, you know, George H.W. Bush was the last of the great, greatest generation. And he sort of passes this on. And now we've had 25 years of the baby boom presidencies. And we didn't, we, you know, a lot of the things that the greatest generation did, essentially reinventing the international system, reinventing domestic system, and saying, how do we deliver a better, safer world to our children? This generation has not done. And we can say, well, I like this about Clinton, or I like this about Bush, or I like this about Obama. There's nothing to like about Trump. But but we could say these things. But, Corey, what I'm getting at is I think there's some longer-term trends afoot here. Trump is as much a symptom as he is the disease. I- uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I've not thought of this before, David. Uh, so I'm going to clumsily think my way through it as we're talking. But I agree with you that a lot, that there are periods of time in American history when people lose confidence that political elites have their interests at heart and that the political system is producing outcomes consistent with their interests. And that's when you get upsurges in populism, right? It's a failure of the system to deliver what people want. And, and so they get aggravated with the system. And I can think of at least two periods in American history, um, maybe, maybe three in which that's the case. The first, the 1820s with the passing of the founding fathers generation and the rise of the rough hewn frontiersmen like Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln struggling with the slavery issue unsuccessfully. Uh, The second period of time that I can think of that has, that has a similar feel is the 1890s, the Gilded Age, where you have such disproportionate um, benefits in the system between rich and poor. And there you do have a successful management of it because you have the rise of leaders like McKinley and Roosevelt and ultimately Woodrow Wilson, who, who expense of social welfare, who institute federal um, taxes, who, 
who foster trust busting and the establishment of unions to defang this this social um, friction. One other uh, period of time that Condi Rice has suggested to me ought to be in the mix for this is the 1960s, when you have the passing from power of the World War II generation and you have the rise of their children, right? Where if you think about America in the 1950s, it's it's almost willfully innocent because 15 million Americans came of age fighting Nazis and Imperial Japan. And once they had done that as 20 year olds, they wanted to be insurance actuaries and advertising executives, right? Boring, safe jobs. And then their children rebelled against that. And so, so yes, I do think there are periods of time in which the system comes into challenge. And the system has, on at least two and maybe three previous instances, been able to write itself by democratic means. But that's where I think Donald Trump's corrosion of our democratic norms and practices actually makes me scared that, that this round uh, may be different than previous rounds where we found our footing. Yeah. We, we don't really have much time. Uh, we got to go here. Um, but I just, sorry for, the, I'm sorry for going on so long. Well, it was, no, no, it was that great. Was, uh, very was good. Great. I, and for, you know, the reason I have these conversations to help write this book, um, <laughs> but, Corey but just wrote a chapter. Yeah, the no, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ian transcribed this. But, 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 but I do think a part of it, um, is I, I, I don't just blame Trump. I don't just blame this generation of politicians. I think the intellectual discussion around it, the pundits and so forth, have become so caught up in sort of branding and so forth that it's been a very sort of empty period in terms of trying to grapple with these, how do we make the world better for the next generation issues and the fundamental philosophical issues. I just, I, I mean, 30, I, 30 seconds each of you, but I just, I, I think there is a big detachment, a growing detachment between the media political class and the average person out there. I mean, there's always been some kind of a gap, but um, it's more metropolitan. It's more highly educated. It's more um, group thinking. I think um, the media um, and the political class than, than it's ever really been, um, in, in, in the modern time. And, and I think it's, it's not got better since Trump. In a way, it's got worse. The very, the very outrage we share about Trump, right, rightly and righteously, um, stops us thinking of, of where we went wrong and why Trump is a symptom, not a cause. So my, it just, I just thought about, Corey made me think about the 1950s and how one of the things people re were rebelling against in the 60s were were the, the the strictures of society and the and the bonds that people had that they felt were too tight those those bonds of the local community the church religion your relatives you know people felt somehow really restricted and constricted and the interesting thing is that over time those bonds have loosened and the internet and technology has helped loosen them further even though we have these now new connections with people it's actually lessened our sense of community it's created these artificial communities and so i actually think 
in this era where we have literally, and this actually is something where I think the Trump administration is not, has not misplaced its emphasis is the Surgeon General is looking at loneliness. The British also are looking, I think it was Theresa May, the Prime Minister. She's a Minister of Loneliness. T- yeah. Loneliness. Why? Because it's we've a very gone so figure, far. <laughs> Sorry. Stop. We've gone so far in the other direction that the lack of community is creating literally physical illnesses, psychological illnesses, inability, you know, the village idiot or the crazy guy with the gun, right, in Florida. Now, people did speak out. But if you had maybe if we went back a little bit more to the positive elements of community, I think maybe that's going to be the antidote to all of this Internet and this this disconnection and the disconnect between elite and local. I think people will turn back to the community. You'll have experts back in the community. You know, people of stature will actually want to learn and they won't feel usurped by people like us. Did I pronounce that right? Anyway, instead of instead of bowling alone, we should have watching Peter Rabbit together. Exactly. That's where we should go with this. Ed Luce, you are the light of the nation. <laughs> Ed Luce is the light of the nation. Um, but, but you know, to, to, to wrap up here, you know, it's very tempting for me to listen to Evelyn making this cry for family values and being tough on Russia and fiscal responsibility and, um, you know, all these things that Republicans used to think they were for and, uh, yes. and say... What's going on here? You know, the Democrats are now, you know, but, but Corey's for those things too. And I think that one of the things that we um, embrace here in the third sub basement of the ministry of snark uh, in the deep state um, to the extent to which such a thing exists is that our community, you mean, right? Exactly. (laughs) Our community is that, is that in, in moments of crisis like this, these labels fall off and become meaningless. And the reality is we all have to deal with climate. We all have to deal with guns. We all have to deal with the Russian threat. We all have to deal with restoring American leadership in the world. We all have to deal with failed infrastructure. We all have to deal with economic mismanagement. And that's you know where we're going with this. Uh, at least that's where most of us are going with this. That's where Corey is going. It's where Evelyn's going. Ed is going off to see Peter Rabbit. Bye, Ed. <laughs> Goodbye, Evelyn. This podcast Goodbye, be a Corey. Uh, yeah, Ed. Next podcast will be a review. <laughs> Goodbye, Ian. Goodbye, everybody in the deep state. And remember, if you get five new people to subscribe, we'll send you a mug. Just send us a tweet to Deep State Swag or to Deep State Radio, uh, or send us an email. Uh, This is an incredibly great offer, but don't lie because, you know, the the deep deep state, state. we're the deep state. We have ways of knowing and we can get back at you, um, probably beginning (laughs) with flattening a couple of your tires, something like that. Anyway, thank you all. Bye-bye. That was such a fun conversation, my friends. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.